0: And welcome to Research on Religion, a weekly podcast series devoted to the social scientific study of religion. I'm Anthony Gill, your host, professor of political science at the University of Washington and distinguished senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion, the gracious sponsor of our podcast. We encourage you to visit our website at www.researchonreligion.org to post comments, ask questions, access additional material related to today's program and to find out what is happening at the Institute. All right, let's begin. Finally, after four years and 212 episodes of research on religion, I am immensely pleased to announce as my guest, Lawrence Iannacone, professor of economics at Chapman university, director of the Institute for the study of religion, economics, and society, and the founder of the Association for the Study of Religion, Economics, and Culture. Professor Yannakone's research has had a profound impact on my own scholarship and innumerable other academics. It is truly rare for a scholar to build a major sub-discipline from scratch that cuts across all the social sciences, literally taking a theoretical perspective with less than five adherents in the late 1980s, and popularizing it to the point where there are hundreds of faculty and graduate students who either specialize in the economics of religion, or who are curious enough to write occasionally about it. While an elusive critter on the podcast circuit, Larry has always been busy publishing with over 50 articles to his name, or organizing conferences and colloquium that promote more methodologically rigorous understandings of religion in society. He has organized an annual conference of people interested in the economics of religion, and over the past several years has been one of the principals in training graduate students to explore and develop their skills in this area. Kids, help me welcome Larry Iannacone. Larry, welcome to Research on Religion.
1: Tony, thank you very much for having me. This is uh, truly an honor and uh, a pleasure. And uh, just who was it uh, welcoming me there seconds ago?
0: Oh, uh, this is this the kids from the Rocky Barkington Elementary School Cheer Squad. We have them in here on a field trip to uh, see how we make podcasts here in the Research on Religion Factory. And I thought there would be nobody better than to, to see how we manufacture these than uh, with uh, my favorite scholar of uh, religion, Larry Anacone.
1: <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Although I worry that uh, with podcasts, as in sausage, you're supposed to uh, not let people see how you do it. But uh... Uh, we,
0: we will not have any pictures. This is all audio. So the kids, uh, the kids are actually behind a very large uh, smoky glass mirror, and so they can't see anything. They just, they just hear. So. <laughs> We, we throw them some video games back there, and they should be good for the next hour or so. Um, our topic for today is going to be the role that sacrifice and stigma play in religion, um, and specifically in religion, but society more generally. And your insights into that area extend far beyond the world of spirituality and and really have profound insights for all sorts of collective behavior. It's one of the Strongest research agendas that you have on a a career that actually has remarkable breadth Um, However before going down that path. I want to explore a bit of your own intellectual trajectory because uh, you know this kind of weird the economics of religion. How did how did that happen?
1: Um, Like any story it's a long one, but we'll keep it short three things in particular deserve mention First is my own personal upbringing and family background. I was raised in a uh, by parents and an extended family uh, that were all very, very devout. We would now just describe them and the religious denomination they were from as evangelical Christian, but uh, uh, it probably would be more precise to say they were. Uh, I was raised in one of the kind of Protestant sects that uh, i we'll be talking about more later. Uh, my parents were not just uh, consumers of religion, but producers. My father was a founder of uh, some some various organizations, youth camps, and, and I grew up uh, in in uh, le- church leadership roles, uh, you know, from almost uh, my you know, from my teenage years onward. And, and so, my own personal background and commitment played a real role in my trying to understand religion. And I might mention my father was a professor, so he was always kind of looking at things not only through the eyes, you know, of personal faith, but also through the eyes of scholarship. And so that was an important uh, factor in in everything, trying to understand what I had experienced and make sense of it through the, uh, you know, the insights of the social sciences. Another piece was uh, my wife, Carrie Carrie Miles, who uh, at the time I was a graduate student studying economics, she was a graduate student studying social psychology and, in particular, trying to understand the Mormon Church's response to change in women's roles, and as we talked about it, uh, I became increasingly convinced that economics had something to say, and although she argues with me about her exact words, what I seem to remember some point is her getting a little aggravated with all of my suggestions and telling me to go write my own damn thesis on religion. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I thought about it and decided that really wasn't such bad uh, advice because of number three. Number three, I was at the University of Chicago studying under uh, what I now you know, uh, realize was one of the most extraordinary collections of economists the world had ever seen. People like Milton Friedman and Gary Becker and George Stigler and many others who have who subsequently won the Nobel Prize, Gary Becker in particular, for his work applying economics economic ideas to non-market behavior, and uh, it, it seemed natural for me then to take what I personally knew, to take what I was learning through you know, my, my wife's research and what I was learning in economics and try to put it together.
0: It is a, a really fortuitous story because had this all happened at a different university, say University of Michigan or maybe even Harvard, uh, I think your initial idea of applying uh, economics to religion probably would have fell on deaf ears.
1: Uh, at least, if they had, didn't expel me. And <laughs> even at Chicago, uh, Gary Gary Becker was really the only one who responded enthusiastically to my initial rather badly explained uh, ideas. So I, I was very fortunate and uh, uh, very grateful for the support that I got among people who had no particular reason to support this uh, seemingly crazy agenda.
0: And now, was this your first idea for a dissertation topic or were you like me? I I had about seven dissertation topics that people kept throwing out the window and I got very frustrated and finally came up with uh, the idea to study religion. Was it the same thing for you or did you know from the get-go this is going to be my dissertation?
1: I had no idea I was going to study religion when I came to Chicago and decided to work in economics. I knew from the get-go I wanted to study something that was of a sociological nature. So I never got into the business uh, planning to study business. But uh, when it came to thesis time, after stumbling around and getting really nowhere, uh, I can't claim that this was my fifth or sixth idea. I didn't have any other (laughs) idea. And uh, when uh, I did fasten on this one, it seemed like things started to unfold very quickly. So I got very excited about it and ended up sticking with it.
0: How was it? initially received now you mentioned that gary becker was you know somebody who embraced this idea and he had been doing a lot of eclectic eclectic applications of economics to a variety of things you know, marriage and the dating market and drug addiction and a number of other things um but religion whoa that seems like a pretty far step and, and he was at least supportive but um you know through the dissertation process and then also the, the next big step which is getting hired by a university how was studying religion, accepted in the economics profession.
1: Uh, I seriously overestimated how open people would be to this kind of work, in part because at Chicago people were more tolerant of it and, in Gary's case, enthusiastic about this kind of work. But what I discovered very quickly was that apart from uh, Gary, there was not all that much enthusiasm even at Chicago and absolutely none elsewhere. When I got on the job market at a time, this was the early 80s, at a time when most Chicago trained PhDs were getting numerous job offers, I came very near to ending up a plumber, you know, uh, or driving a bus or something. I, I had almost no job prospects, and it turned out that people saw the word religion and just would set the thing aside. <laughs> and, uh,
0: but you eventually landed well, right?
1: I was very fortunate. In the end, I was hired at Santa Clara University, which is an outstanding undergraduate, uh, primarily undergraduate institution, and uh, had great colleagues who were very supportive. It truly worked out for the best, but it was touch-and-go for a while, and uh, more importantly, I guess, in, in answer to really the question behind your question, it took quite a while, really most of a decade, before other uh, many other colleagues in, in economics took this seriously. There was a tendency uh, uh, early on to get uh, caught between the many secular faculty who just thought religion was either uninteresting or not appropriate for you know, or meaningful for, for economics, uh, or just, you know, something that was dying off and of, of no great interest in general, uh, on the one hand, and then there were people, on the other hand, who were personally devout, who often thought this approach sounded offensive. And so you didn't find much much support on either side back
0: in those days. Yeah, um, and I, I can share that experience, too, of, of doing this early on in political science. And I have to inject my own personal story here because this was about a, a decade or so, maybe about eight years after uh, you had gotten your position at, at Santa Clara. I was working on my dissertation. As as I mentioned, I'd been struggling finding different topics, and I just thought I'd do an easy comparison of, of religion in uh, latin america related to the political sphere and uh, a friend of mine who was uh, going to graduate school with me at the time had met me at ucla we, i was coming from the parking garage and he says uh, hey i know you study religion and you, know, you do rational choice type of work uh, we all do here at ucla so have you seen this article on rationality in society by this guy named larry Iannacone. And i said no I, I didn't even know that journal existed and i took a look at it and it was a major eye-opener And it just so happened that I I think uh, several months later, maybe about a year later, you were giving a talk down at UCLA, and I I was, like, so excited. This was, oh, my gosh, the person who really opened my eyes to this stuff is going to be down here. And I remember sitting with you. We were on the lawn outside of Bunch Hall and sitting down there, and I I showed you my paper that I had written, and I remember one of your first reactions uh, was, it's so weird seeing my name cited in an article. <laughs> and i said dude this this is your great stuff this is this is really incredible because uh, again it's it's one of these things that you know a lot of people um look at and they go huh um but when you really start to think about it closely and take it seriously it it uh, it was a game changer it's been a game changer in the sociology religion and the study of religion so greatly appreciate what um you actually did
1: I appreciate that story, Tony, and I appreciate uh, your reminding me of that. I remember that event very well, and I certainly wasn't making it up. I was quite shocked and pleased (laughs) to discover that somebody was actually reading things I'd written.
0: And, uh, you know, just to to put this in context, and I I was going to mention this a little bit later with the paper that we're going to discuss on Sacrifice and Stigma, Um, that paper, which I consider to be a a monumental work in not only the study of economics or religion, but the study of collective action— which is a huge topic in political economy. That's received over fifteen hundred sites in um, on the, whatever the Google Scholar thing is, and so it's uh, it's had an impact. And I, I think you know, looking back to the mid to late nineteen eighties, and you know, seeing a pretty desolate landscape out there, you, it, it's really turned around. And one of the things you did to turn this around, and this is. Another thing that I think the scholarly community has to applaud you for is the creation of ASREC, which was the Association for the Study of Religion, Economics, and Culture. And I mean, that was a labor of love on your part. And what was the motivating factor behind doing that?
1: Uh, Well, I tell people that I learned the lesson that every seventh grader learns, but late in life that uh, you may not be able to get two people to come to your party, but you can get 20. Uh, I, I learned after many years of encouraging, sometimes begging other economists to talk to sociologists of religion and attend their conferences that it just wasn't going to happen when you were asking somebody to move over to another field and you know even for a, a single presentation. And what happened was that There had been steady progress in the field. People were beginning to write, but it was an article here, an article there, uh, all kind of unrelated work in economics. And uh, it took tremendous effort to get these people to talk to each other, and there was no natural forum. And I uh, got permission from the leadership of the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion, which, as you know, primarily includes sociologists, political scientists, and psychologists, uh, I had been the, almost the only or one of the very few economists who would go there with any regularity for a decade or more. And I said, you know, I think we can get uh, 8, 10, I don't know, 12 economists to come here if you let me organize a few sessions rather than just one. And that's my seventh-grade party story. And uh, they said, yeah, go ahead. And as it turned out, I think we ended up with something more like uh, 20 or 30 people, most of them economists, Doing a whole series of the sessions that first year and also Gary Becker, uh, giving a keynote lecture and it was an astonishing kind of coming out party for a group of people who didn't, who all sort of viewed themselves as isolated individuals and suddenly discovered that there really were a number of folks interested and, uh, that there really was a, a nascent field here that, uh, they could begin to build. That's where how ASREC started back in 2002 at uh, a conference in Salt Lake City.
0: Yeah, and I re- I remember that conference, uh, and it was really exciting for me. I I generally don't like going to academic conferences, but uh, it it was neat seeing people who were all working on the same kind of stuff. And it even even in the early 2000s, it's a fairly new perspective, a new field, and uh, it, just the excitement there. I mean, everybody was really open to ideas. Nobody was defending their turf as so often happens at academic conferences. And so a lot of uh, cross-fertilization of ideas were going around. Just such a, a, a vibrant uh, time. And, and it's it's really expanded. It's its own conference now. It's it's separated off from the uh, SSSR meetings. And how how many people do you estimate are doing something on a you know, regular or semi-regular basis related to the field of uh, economics of religion?
1: Well, it's definitely in the hundreds, yeah. and uh, our ASREC conferences, major ASREC conferences, have had 150, 170 participants uh, in, in some of the past years. Uh, the, you know It's hard to know the exact numbers, but we're talking about uh, several hundred people in economics now who've made one contribution or another, and a core group of somewhere in the neighborhood of a one to two hundred people who have been consistently working in these areas. So it's a huge change, and uh, I would predict you're going to continue to see this uh, because, uh, if, if only because religion ha- is, uh, you know, both for good and ill, too important in, in the world of, of politics uh, and uh, uh, conflict and, and many other aspects of, of life, uh, both in the United States and across the world.
0: And, and political science was rather slow getting there. You, know, you were always encouraging me to do it, but I'm institutionally lazy and uh, it was hard to be to get some folks but we've been tenuring a few folks and have had them on the previous podcast Carrie Kasel and Ani Sarkissian and Carolyn Warner have all been uh, very much influenced by this uh, field of thought and it's uh, again, it's, it's a growing thing and it's just absolutely uh, fantastic uh, to
1: see how I mean,
0: has, has it surprised you how much it's taken off?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely <laughs> uh, You know, I continue to uh, Think. Reflect on those uh, formative and sometimes rather difficult years when it seemed like uh, there was there was no one who had any interest in, in this work, uh, and then you know uh, some slightly later years when the only people who seemed interested were were my colleagues in, in sociology. i uh, I need to emphasize that ASREC is very much an interdisciplinary organization, and I would. Uh, I think it would be horrible uh, if it were anything else. It's. Uh, I, I've mentioned the economists who have gotten involved but it's, uh, it's also been a great many people from sociology, political science, anthropology, psychology, uh, the whole gamut of other social sciences and uh, really the only thing worse than economists not talking about a religion at all is having them talk about it only among themselves. Well, I'm excited about ASREC and I think other people continue to be and it's exciting also to see the leadership move beyond just a small circle of us to more and more people. Yeah,
0: countries. Absolutely. In fact, yeah, it's spreading overseas. There's going to be an international conference in yeah. uh, I Britain. We one in
1: Durham, England, yep. uh, that was managed you know, entirely by our, our uh, British and, and European colleagues, that uh, was very
0: successful. And uh, we have a conference coming up, I believe, in March in Boston, so yeah. hopefully I'll be there. I put in my proposal, by the way, so I, I don't know if you're the one who accepts those, but I'm going to lobby here a little bit, but... I want to get out there. All right.
1: First. We'll put you on the program, and we'll come after you if you don't. <laughs>
0: All, All right. right. It should be fun. I have a lot of fun at those. Uh, it, it truly is the the one academic conference that I, I love. So anybody in the Boston area want to stop by, stay tuned to our Facebook fan page for more details on that. But uh, this is a lot of reminiscing about institution building, and I apologize for our listeners. But, again, I, I can't emphasize how much... How unique this is in academia to to see this kind of institution building and to see a perspective really catch fire uh, across so many different disciplines of the social sciences. So uh, my apologies for that, but let's get down to the substance here. You have written over 50 articles, and your original insights are numerous, but the one set of articles that I really think has the broadest-ranging impact has been your work on what we call Sacrifice and Stigma. And this directly engages in in a very novel way the vast literature on collective action, which I mentioned before. And collective action theory is huge across all the different uh, social science disciplines. But first off, tell me how you stumbled across this whole idea of trying to figure out what sacrifice and stigma meant to the world of religion.
1: It goes back to that personal history I was discussing. I grew up in uh, not merely a Protestant church background, but what we would now think of as a very strict or conservative background, very, very high commitment. And truly, I saw in its institutions, not just the Sunday church services, but the way people in this church or denomination were so devoted to their faith and so tightly linked to each other, so, so much so that the link between... that. Identifying somebody as family versus merely friend was almost difficult to do. It was kind of an extended family. I saw that much of that I think is best and and worst in religion, because uh, what I experienced was tremendous uh, commitment and an affirming environment. I tell people that even now, after decades of not being very active in this in this particular denomination, I could probably go to almost any city in the United States call up one of my former friends from that church background, and they would say, well, of course you have to stay with us tonight rather than stay in a hotel. Uh, that I, I don't think that any of my colleagues, you know, much as I like them, would have that same reaction, even my co-authors, you know? Uh, but it truly was like family. And on the other hand, I would struggle, and I watched my father and mother, who were very involved in, in church leadership and, and arg- organizing conferences and youth camps, struggle with a great deal of dogmatism, a great deal of uh, insularity, a tendency to think you know, quite poorly of anyone who is outside of the group. And I, I would wonder, well, you know, do these things have to go together? Are they just the result of our peculiar history? And as I studied mainly work in sociology of religion, I began to realize that this pattern shows up again and again and was fundamental to a distinction that goes back 100 more years between what we call a mainstream church and an exclusive sect. And I found myself thinking, well, why is this? And that's where, of course, the economics came in. Because from an economic standpoint, it's even more paradoxical. These, these uh, sectarian groups are demanding a great deal. They're violating, it would seem, the law of demand, because you know, they're asking so much of people. They're, they're high-cost groups. Why is anybody joining them, and why is anybody staying? That's the paradox that got me... Uh, fascinated. That was the hook, and uh, you know, eventually I stumbled onto some uh, answers that uh, seem to have, uh, you know, proved it to be pretty durable and uh, and uh, you know widely accepted.
0: And, and this is a paradox that has been widely recognized i know uh, dean kelly who is a sociologist religion wrote a book called why conservative churches are growing um and the the title of that book is a little bit misleading because it, it wasn't necessarily that they're growing but that they tend to be more vibrant and strong and he came in at from and this book was i guess published in mid 1970s right 72 I think. 72 okay so early 70s and as you mentioned, the puzzle from the economic standpoint is even more uh, head scratching. I, I do an exercise with my students in classes. I said, if you have to design a religion, what would it look like? And most students are saying, well, you know, it'd be real laid back. You know, nobody, nobody, you know, but get hung up about anything. It'll be kind of all hippie and, you know, just come and do what you want. And you know, I, I point out that religions who ha- that have modeled themselves that way or who have tended to, devolve in that direction um, are not as vibrant. as the ones that are very strict and demand um, high cost from their members are the ones that actually do pretty well. And we, we think of as, you know, filled with members who are filled with much vigor and vim. Give us, just so we have some reference point, empirical reference point, give us some ideas of what, what we mean by some of the stricter churches.
1: Okay, get a handle on it, it's best to start with the groups that are really extremely strict and extremely distinctive, and then you can then apply the the idea more broadly. Uh, Within Judaism, the ultra-Orthodox are the epitome of what we would think of as a strict uh, religion, a strict, exclusive, demanding, distinctive clothing. So you 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 immediately recognize an Orthodox Jew on, on the street. Distinctive dietary rules of of keeping kosher, things that, in fact, not just what you eat, but how you cook, and and, uh, distinctive rules about uh, who you interact with, a strong tendency to meet and and to work and stay close to the other members of the group. Uh, as, As many of your listeners will know, Orthodox Judaism, going back hundreds, thousands of years, has numerous rules. That don't fit all that easily with what we would think of as a normal secular life. Never did and uh, perhaps, you know, especially now in the modern world are, are costly in the economic sense. Even if wearing these clothes doesn't cost extra money, it makes it very hard for you to lead a normal life. It makes it very hard for you to have normal kind of professional experiences and, you know, e- even getting hired for, for uh, many normal jobs. That's one example. Uh, A equally striking case in Protestantism would be the Old Order Amish, who again, live in distinctive places, wear unusual clothing, demand very high levels of commitment, the clothing being basically clothing that comes out of the 19th century, avoid using modern technologies, uh, electricity, or computers, or machines. And, and everywhere you turn, there is a heavy cost of driving, you know, in, in horse-drawn carriages. But you don't have to be that extreme to clearly be experiencing these kind of costs of strictness. If you think about what it means to be a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, there's a uh, almost equally long list, not quite as as difficult and demanding, but Mormons, whether your listeners know or not, have. Uh, a long list of, of rules and regulations, including what's called keeping the word of wisdom, staying away from coffee and tobacco and, and drink, and um, spending, they're expected to devote to tithe, to, to put 10% of their uh, gross income you know, contributed to the church as, as an absolute, as a minimum to be a member in good standing, to devote time to proselytizing, likewise go through the same kind of list for Jehovah's Witnesses who are expected to spend a tremendous amount of time going door-to-door witnessing. These are costly, no matter how you, you uh, think of costs, and especially when you think about them from the economic standpoint of what we call opportunity costs. You're sacrificing a lot. You're making... Sa- and, and, of course, we go on and talk about rules, go- you know, governing sexuality or health. All of these are things that you would normally imagine would keep people away from a church and, in fact, cause members to go fleeing from the church toward one of those low-cost, easy-going churches that you were describing that your students uh, might outline.
0: Yeah, I I don't think uh, many people realize what some of these sacrifices and and stigmas uh, can be, and, and my students don't fully understand it when you're in your own you know, context, especially out here in Seattle where you know, not many people attend church, but there actually are quite a few Mormons, and you think of it from a Mormon perspective, you know, just saying somebody, hey, you know, it, it's Sunday, the football's on, let's go to a bar and have a few drinks and watch football, and then they say, well, no, we really can't do that. That cuts you off from a social network, and that's that can be a big deal.
1: Yeah, I, I try to explain this to students the following way, because... Most of them have no trouble understanding why it would be costly, difficult, very uh, you know, demanding to be a member you know, of, the or, of the ultra-Orthodox uh, Judaism uh, or the Amish. They might hesitate to apply that to Mormons, but I, I, I remind them, I say, you know, when you were in seventh grade, just showing up to school with the wrong kind of shoes was enough to, to ostracize you. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact is, we we're extraordinarily social creatures with a very finely tuned sense of insiders and outsiders. And uh, when a group comes along and demands distinctive behavior of almost any kind, those people are immediately separated from the rest of the world. And they pay a price for that. Uh, Of course, the paradox is that somehow there's something, and I assume we'll talk about it soon, Mm -hmm. that offsets that price. But the big mistake is to imagine that, no, there's no price. It's no big deal.
0: Well before we we talk about the the big reveal so to speak of of why this occurs and your insights here are as i mentioned are are important not only for understanding these religions but for a lot of other groups uh give us some evidence of why these groups say the ultra orthodox or the amish at at one extreme but let's say the the mormons or even Something we might not think is all that extreme. The Assemblies of God or the Nazarene tend to be relatively strict denominations in, in terms of their behavioral codes. What is some of the evidence that these groups are flourishing or, or are doing pretty well? That are as what you would say are strong denominations.
1: Well, as you point out, the evidence has been noted going back many years, starting with Dean Kelly's work back in 1972. The the most direct and obvious piece of information is uh, from growth rates. When you look at the so-called mainline or old-line Protestant churches in America, the uh, Methodists and the Episcopalians uh, and Lutherans, uh, uh, you find that that most of them have been in decline since the mid-60s. As a share of the population, many of them have been in decline for 200 years, uh, Presbyterians, I think, have been losing about 2% of their membership with you know, uh, remarkable consistency for now probably 50 years. Meanwhile, those more distinctive, you know, uh, strict, demanding groups have been growing, many of them, very rapidly. So Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses have continued to grow worldwide, uh, doubling every you know, 15, 20 years or so. Uh, but uh, but the somewhat less strict groups, the Baptist congregations and Assemblies of God groups that are in the charismatic uh, or sometimes you would call it more fundamentalist-like groups, most of them have been doing remarkably well relative to their mainstream counterparts. And it hasn't been true just one year or two years or one decade. It's been going on now for generations. And uh, you know, this is the ultimate market test: whether you survive and flourish over time.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so we'll growth.
1: Talk about other data too, if you'd like. Yeah,
0: so growth rates are important, as you just mentioned too. It's it's there's a little interesting natural experiments that go on all the time too, because a lot of these groups that go into decline often. End up with schisms within them, and I know like you know, for instance, you were talking about the Presbyterians in a kind of a gradual decline, but there's a small group of Presbyterians that break off and try to become more orthodox or more strict in their behavior the reformed Presbyterians and such and and they tend to do pretty well relative to the group that they broke away from
1: yeah you you know you you have to compare them always to. Some other group, you can't just uh, look, you know, at some number and, and attach meaning by itself. But in general, you're quite right. The groups that have moved uh, toward the more conservative or more strict, uh, more, uh, you know, exclusive, distinctive side uh, within Protestantism have generally done better than their more liberal counterparts. And uh, frankly, this has come as a repeated shock and surprise to, to people all across the spectrum.
0: So its growth rates are one indication of this, but what are some of the other bits of evidence that these are pretty vibrant denominations? Uh, point
1: out, Dean Kelly and others have, have said right from the start, this really wasn't all about growth. In fact, Dean Kelly had complained that the his editors forced, or publishers forced that title on him. What he, A better title would have been Why Strict Churches Are Strong rather than Why Conservative Churches Are Growing. And of course I uh, stole it, but at least credited <laughs> that that... Uh, that term some 20-plus uh, years later when I wrote my article on this, uh, when you ask, well, what it makes an organization strong, growth isn't the main thing you would look at. You'd look at things like levels of involvement. So how frequently do your members actually come to church? Or for that matter, do they merely come to church on Sunday, or do they get involved in other activities throughout the week? How much money do they contribute? Uh, how firmly do they believe in the group? How closely tied are they? So, if you ask them, well, you know, who are your five closest friends? How many of those close friends are actually members of the religion or members of your of your congregation? Well, by every one of those measures, these more conservative or strict churches that we've been talking about come out ahead. Even uh, in answers to surveys where people have said, well, give your church a grade, your local congregation or your denomination, you know, A, B, C, D. Uh, it turns out that these these groups, these stricter groups, do better even when when you give them give the members that kind of an artificial exercise. so more money, more time, more commitment, tighter social bonds. This is amazing because it 's so consistent when you look across different denominations and even across different types of religions
0: yeah uh, we 're going to point people back to uh, some of your articles on this why uh, Strict churches are strong as well as the Sacrifice and Stigma article so people can dig into the data for themselves because it's very extensive, and what's really neat is you pull it from all different sources. You get the general social survey and other religion surveys, and, you know, some people could say, well, this is just a Protestant thing, but you give evidence for Orthodox Jews as compared to conservative Jews as compared to um, Reformed Jews. And it, you just look at that, and it's it's like looking at the same data over and over again. It's so consistent across different denominations and faith traditions.
1: And that, that's what made it so compelling for me, and uh, I, I'm by no means the first person to talk about this kind of, we would say, empirical regularity. But there was uh, not much in the way of theory trying you know, that could make sense of it, and in particular, pull it together across all these different traditions. When you're in one of these churches, you tend to think of everything in very, you know, in terms of the specific beliefs of your church or even the specific personalities. Uh, it it What's fascinating is that it's not about the personalities. It's not about the particular beliefs of of one church versus another. It's something much more generic, much more pervasive. And in fact, I think there's evidence, that very clear evidence, that this same dynamic has been operating uh, over thousands of years and across the whole planet.
0: So explain that for us, then. If it's not the personality of the pastor in front of the congregation, if it's not the specific theological content... Why are these strict sects, these strict denominations that require high levels of sacrifice on the part of individuals, why are they so strong?
1: Okay, so let me start with a uh, comic I saw some years ago in a Dilbert comic strip for a really simple but uh, illuminating answer, and then we'll move on to, to the specifics. Uh, In this strip that I remember from years ago, Dogbert is proposing to to start a new religion. And he says, I'm going to make a new discount religion. Tithing would only be 5%, so uh, you'd only have to contribute half what you normally would contribute. And you can do anything you want. And then you move on to the next panel, and he says, only problem is, I don't think I'd want to go to a church filled with those kind of people.
0: Hmm.
1: One very simple way of saying it is, look, a church that demands nothing of its members is likely to get nothing from its members, and a church that gets nothing from its members isn't really a church at all. In order to get a handle on this, and a more precise handle, you have to think about what it means to be a part of a group that engages in collective action, collective production. Can we take a minute to talk about that? Is that okay?
0: Let's do that.
1: (laughs) Uh, Economics economists talk about the theory of clubs, and it's a little misleading because uh, they don't just mean social clubs. But we talk about activities in which what you gain as an individual depends not just on what you've invested, but what everyone else in a group has invested. These are collective goods, and they happen. They crop up everywhere. Uh, when I'm on a team, a sports team, how we do as a team and how much glory I get doesn't just depend on that one play I ran, but everybody else. And even that one play that I ran had all these other people in it. Uh, in a collective musical performance it's very clear that no matter how good a particular soloist is or a particular person on you know, on a violin that it's the whole orchestra, it's the whole choir that makes the event. And you can extend this to most jobs and work groups. It turns out that kind of everywhere you look in life there are activities going on wh- whose benefits depend on what everybody does What I alone do, uh, therefore, it's not right to say that it doesn't count for much. It's that what I do spills over to everybody else and vice versa. Now, those kind of activities are, as I say, very common, but they create a problem that we call the free rider problem. If my benefits depend on what everybody else is doing and vice versa. I'm tempted to just kind of slack off and consume the benefits from everybody else. And anybody who's tried to organize anything knows this. If you say, hey, let's all get together and have a you know, potluck party, uh, you end up finding, or a series of potlucks, you end up quickly finding that there are a few people you can count on and a great many other people who are you know, show up for the food but never to clean up. Uh, when you try to run you know we're talking about academic environments here you and i are both professors you try to run a seminar or a conference you'll find that there are people who will applaud the idea but then not do the, the work of showing up or if they show up they won't take the time to study the paper or if it comes time for them to present a paper they won't do a job very well team production is everywhere and where there is a team, you know, there's always the problem of people who are slacking off.
0: I, I have to stop you and, and, okay. and just uh, mention that using this theory to explain academics is is absolutely fantastic because, as you know, many of our colleagues uh, you know, rant and rave about collective action all the time, that we need more of it and more communal activity and, and things of, of that nature. But uh, when it comes to, to cleaning the departmental fridge, nobody ever does it. And I point this out to them on numerous occasions where, you know, you all want world peace through communal organization, but you can't clean out the departmental fridge. And I remind them, if you have a theory of social behavior, it has to apply to you as well.
1: You're exactly right. And (laughs) most academics can't organize their way out of a paper bag. (laughs) Uh, They, of all people, should appreciate how difficult this problem can be When you, we should emphasize this, when you can't easily observe who's working hard or whose excuses are real, uh, when it's, you know, when it's piecework on a factory line, it's easy enough for me to just sort of monitor and say, oh, you're working hard or you're producing a lot. But when it's something as diffuse as keeping up the spirit uh, or even, you know, taking your turn on the refrigerator at, uh, at at the department, it gets a lot trickier and uh, what generally happens is that things, you know, nothing happens, frankly. Uh, You know, There's just a lot of missed opportunities everywhere that uh, just don't happen because it's very hard to organize people.
0: And in the religious environment, I often talk to my students about this too, is that uh, you can get a sense of this. You can walk into two different churches. There's one church where everybody is not really singing along with the hymns. They're just kind of mumbling in the background, and it's very uncomfortable. It, it's not a great environment to be in, and but you could go into another church where everybody's singing, they're clapping hands, they're standing up, and you yourself might be a little bit embarrassed to do that, but it's it's rather infectious because everybody is participating. There's a, a greater enjoyment in, in the entire process. A, a group club good has been produced.
1: Yeah. This is really essential to understanding what's going on here. When you go into even a, the most ordinary, I mean, in the most uh, mainstream of American churches, you can name instantly, if you're careful, 20, 30 things that depend on the activities, not just of the minister or the paid clergy, but the congregation. Mm-hmm. It's really a group. It's a club. We are all in the role of producers and consumers. And in that sense, it's utterly unlike what happens when you go to the local supermarket and just pick something off the shelf and pay for it. There, there's a very clear line between who's the producer, who's the consumer, who's employed, you know, and and who's uh, the client. But churches don't work that way. They are collective to the core. And that means that we're all in these dual roles, these complicated dual roles of both being the beneficiaries and the contributors. And when you stop and think about that, wow, that's pretty complicated. How do you keep that going?
0: So how do churches solve this problem?
1: Well, uh, they, they use you know every trick in the book, but uh, the one that that's most dear to my heart and the one that's most paradoxical is what we've been talking about. They impose requirements, costly requirements, that on the surface look unnecessary, gratuitous tell somebody well you can't eat meat on friday and and, you know on the outside you say well why would you you do that and uh and i you know i i i'm listing something that that traditionally catholics did and i know that a a devout catholic pre-vatican ii catholic would say well this was a tradition of the church and maybe would even know enough to tell me about the doctrine that got you there let me, you know, set aside the particulars and just say, okay, imagine you've now asked people to do a lot of rather difficult things to be part, of, in order to be part of your group. Two things happen. One is that half-hearted members get discouraged. It, uh, I've used lots of different examples. One was if I set up a group that uh, provided food free of charge to everybody in the middle of New York City, it becomes a soup kitchen and uh, is overwhelmed by folks who are going to show up for the soup and the food and they're just who aren't going to stay around to contribute. If you take that same group and you moved it off uh, to a distant location, you know, in the middle of the Great Plains or something, well, now people are only going to go there if they really want to remain a part of the group. Uh, This is what communes have done traditionally. You can do it in other ways by demanding distinctive behavior, distinctive requirements. What do you do? You screen out the half-hearted members that way. Half of the story uh, of sacrifice and stigma is that when you demand sacrifices from potential members, you're going to discourage the people who are least committed, you're going to leave behind or you're going to, I mean, you're going to, uh, that the group will end up having more of the people, relatively more of the people who are highly committed. So, you know, it, it's like a fraternity uh, that has an initiation and indeed, uh, maybe we'll talk about this later, all kinds of organizations make it really difficult to, to get involved in the first place. And we all kind of know intuitively that this helps boost levels of commitment. Part of it is just this screaming function you're screaming
0: out half-hearted people yeah we we talk about this in economics too as a pooling equilibrium and a separating equilibrium (laughs) everybody looks the same that's going to come in but we only want the ones who are really devoted so okay who's devoted well you can raise your hand that's pretty easy but okay now you got to wear this funny hat or you have to give up drinking or socializing with your friends on friday night Uh, then a lot of the hands come down so yeah. yeah so
1: you and and the thing that's remarkable and important here is that you can impose these kind of costs in numerous ways. Yeah. And I think that's what what makes this theory so powerful is that it doesn't predict a particular scheme uh, a particular belief, a particular you know requirement of what you're going to eat or not eat, or what prohibition any number of prohibitions might work this way, and depending on the history of the group it's it's pretty obvious that certain prohibitions are going to be more likely to be embraced because they're easier to justify, they're more consistent with the group's history, but and, you know, the beauty here is that all kinds of different schemes can really amount to the same thing. They've made it costly to just be a half-hearted member, okay? There's a second side to that. The second side is, imagine you're the people who are left now, okay? You've screened out a lot of the half-hearted members. Now you've got a group where The rule is, you've got to come every Sunday. You can't smoke, drink, go to dances. Uh, You have to devote, you know, uh, you can't have friendships outside of the group. I'm I'm naming kind of the particulars of a a really strict uh, Orthodox Jewish or uh, Amish kind of group. Well, what's left is that suddenly, you know, the the Wednesday Bible study is the highlight of your, the social highlight of, of your life we call this a kind of substitution effect you've made everything else costly or or hard to to consume whether it's you know everyday food and drink or everyday social relationships when you push other things out of range you make what the group provides uh, the only game in town and uh, you've you've basically used in, in economic terms you've raised the price of alternatives and you've caused people, for perfectly good reasons, to substitute toward the group. We do this in, in, in policy when we, when we make uh, driving cars more expensive so that people will be more likely to use public transportation, or we subsidize public transportation hoping to, that fewer people will use cars. I'm saying that a lot of the rules and regulations and, and restrictions that religions put on people have the effect of increasing their involvement if they're going to be involved
0: at all. It it must also help with monitoring and enforcement of behaviors as well. I I tend to uh, think about the Mormons. I know that uh, since they can't drink, well, you know, Friday night is going to kind of be a lonely night, but what uh, a lot of these groups do is i say okay down at the you know, at the ward we're going to open up the gym and we're going to have friday night basketball and you know the the members of the local community come in and you recognize the same people over and over again they're very committed and if somebody disappears or they're not showing up very much you notice it
1: oh yeah i can't uh for people who have not been members of these kind of groups it's uh i have to emphasize just how Thoroughly, everybody knows what everyone else is doing. Yeah. Uh, in a big, mainstream church, you're part of a crowd. You're pretty anonymous. You count yourself lucky if, you know, once every month or so, the pastor notices who you are or something. In these other groups, you miss one meeting, and people say, Oh, call you up, you know? <laughs> and say, are you okay? And, and they're not just... And the beauty of this is that they're not just nagging you. They're genuinely concerned about you. Yes. The beauty of this is that uh, a monitoring scheme has also been linked to uh, a set of rewards, people really being concerned about each other, people really interacting regularly. So you're quite right. You lose your invisibility when you impose these kind of costs and requirements.
0: And we've had on the past, Mike McBride had, had applied your theory to um, looking at Mormon organization. And for me, this is a, a very vivid um, Use of your theory in in a specific context, because, as you said there, there's some monitoring going on that sounds a little bit uh, you know repressive or something, but you're right it, it's a genuine caring I mean he mentions that if somebody in the ward is is sick or ill and they haven't been around for a while, they people go over to the house and say hey what's going on what What can we help you with and it, it becomes a, a a really important uh, support network that has a greater value than what your initial sacrifice or any stigma that you have to bear might be.
1: That's the trick. The remarkable thing is that if you get this right, and my old article that we've talked about, you know, tried to show mathematically just what you needed to get it right, but the basic line is that, you know, the point here is that if you get it right, you don't just screen out some people, you don't just, you know, push people around into being more or less involved. You actually... Re- create a group that can offer people more than they would ever get in another setting and another way of saying it is think about almost anybody unless they're incredibly alienated uh, count their family as the most important people in their lives and however much their family might drive them crazy they themselves would would be just you know horrified or despondent to suddenly lose all of their family mm. Imagine what it takes to take to make a family out of hundreds of unrelated people. That's what Mormon congregations and the Mormon church does again and again in place after place. That's pretty amazing. Now, there isn't anybody, you know, listening to you who doesn't have perhaps 50 different stories about relatives who irritate them or you know, complaints about when they were a teenager, how they wished their parents hadn't been so insistent that they do this or didn't do that. We all have our stories about how families feel sometimes, you know, stifling or frustrating, but we wouldn't trade them in, you know, for an anonymous group of people, you know, for a million dollars. These religious groups managed to create something like this out of unrelated people, And it's incredibly valuable, even though it has these uh, difficult and sometimes kind of very annoying features.
0: Now, this doesn't just apply to the Mormons or to the Orthodox Jews or to even a wide variety of other strict denominations that you could mention. But it applies more broadly. One of the things that I point out to my students, a lot of political scientists take my religion and politics class. I sign your article. They go, why are we reading about this? You know, it doesn't seem to make much sense. I go, but now I want you to take this these ideas about strict churches and apply it more broadly. And there's a whole penelope of of other organizations that this applies to. And and as I mentioned before, your you know, your article on uh, sacrifice and stigma and the one on uh, our strict churches or why are strict churches strong has has gotten over fifteen hundred sites, which is amazing for uh, a couple of academic articles. Where else has this been applied to?
1: Uh, okay, so first I want to clarify that within religion, it hasn't just been applied to the most strict group, the ultra-Orthodox Jews, the Amish, the, the Mormons. It's been applied to varying degrees all across the spectrum of denominations. So as you move to less strict, you get some of this, not as much of it. So, the, so it applies to varying degrees to almost any church any religion. But you're right, the big surprise has been how readily other academics in anthropology, psychology, sociology, political science, and of course economics have applied this to things that have uh, almost nothing to do with religion. Certainly aren't groups that are all about the supernatural. And what do I mean? Well, communes, uh, gangs, mafias, fraternities, and sororities environmental organization, military units, ethnic subcultures, tribes, clans. Uh, recently, somebody's done some work on Alcoholics Anonymous and other self-help groups. There's an extensive literature on terrorism that relates back to, to this theory uh,
0: and more <laughs> yeah uh, we uh, you mentioned terrorism. We uh, featured Ellie Berman in the past too, and uh, this is integral to his explanation for why groups like Hamas and why suicide bombers are so effective is because they create these very tightly knit organizations and they they filter out people who you know might be a little bit squishy you can 't have you know squishy people in these kind of organizations. they have to be firmly committed, and so uh, we'll refer people back to to that as well and i I also have to mention this is one of these you know stories uh that i mean really highlights what an impact your work has had but i was at uh, pittsburgh one time and uh, one of my colleagues was doing some work on uh uh, prison gangs and how prison gangs organize and he said to me have you seen this work by larry yannacone about this stuff this just like totally opens my um eyes to what's going on in these prison gangs and i go "Mm, do i know it let me tell you um and it, it, you know, just uh, such broad applicability—it's it, absolutely cool. And, and and for my students too. You, you mentioned fraternities and sororities, and you know, from the outside, I, I know a lot of faculty members and other students who are not in the Greek system look at these. silly uh, rituals, and and actually use the word ritual, uh, around rush, and uh, they they have to go around chanting and singing songs and doing all these different weird kind of things, but it it makes perfect sense in this framework.
1: Yeah, and we have to uh, point out to people that the alternative is to Imagine that all of these groups are just full of crazy people or indoctrinated people or people who are too ignorant to know that there are other alternatives. You know, the, the great problem in the study of religion going back for two centuries is that outsiders and critics uh, and even sometimes insiders have tended to look at religion and just say, well, it, it's all about uh, socialization. It, it's all about brainwashing. It's all about uh, irrational needs uh, or, or we have more fancy and sophisticated words for this. It's about cognitive dissonance. Uh, the bottom line problem with these interpretations is that effectively you're saying again and again and again that at least when it comes to religion or fraternities and sororities or gangs, people are just plain irrational or ignorant or or uh, you know, coerced and. This doesn't get you very far when you try to explain any other aspects of their behavior, because these perp- people turn out to be perfectly normal mm-hmm. uh, when you give them a psychological test. But also, it's just a, a kind of small-minded and prejudiced way of thinking about people who are different from you. Yeah, I,
0: I'm glad you mentioned that, too, because this is one of the uh, difficult things that I have to wrestle with in in academia and, you know, being somebody who subscribes to rationality, human beings are rational. um, You know, a lot of academics dismiss other people as, oh, that's just stupid behavior. If they were brilliant as us and had the right, you know, training, blah, 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 they would be really smart, especially when applied to looking at people who are religious. And I said, no, you know, these people are just as smart as everybody else. You got to look at the incentives that they face and, and how they solve various collective action problems, principal agent problems, all the whole set of other economic problems.
1: Yeah, and when you scratch the surface, frankly, even among the most liberal, secular, and well-educated people in America and Europe, you find they're deeply embedded in faith systems of their own. They may not, you know, frame them as supernatural commitments, but I would tell my my uh, colleagues, my uh, often very secular libertarian colleagues back at the at George Mason University and their students. that if you really want to understand a cult, uh, uh, you know, study yourselves.
0: <laughs> yeah. No.
1: <that's... laughs> and, uh... It would offend them occasionally, yeah. <laughs> uh, but others would recognize that, yeah, you know you're right. we 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 uh, we have all the same trappings. We have our rules and our regulations, we have our styles. we have all kind we have our you know our favorite authors and our sacred books, and we look down our noses at people who obviously are equally intelligent but located at uh, you know a university uh, you know to the north of us or to the west. And uh, exclusivity and rules and regulations are uh, a part of maintaining identity and solidarity all across the board.
0: Yeah, we have that here in, in the state of Washington as well with uh, the recy- the ritual of recycling and driving Subaru out back. So,
1: yeah, uh, <laughs> one of my former students, uh, Feller Bose, has done some really nice work looking at different environmental organizations pointing out that this same kind of church-sect dynamic is at work there and you can lay them out on a spectrum from the most liberal uh, in, in, in or easygoing you know least demanding like say the Sierra Club you know pay them a few dollars get get a get a uh, a cal- pretty calendar and call it a day to groups that are running around you know engaging in illegal activities spiking trees you know uh risking uh their own you know their own livelihood or uh safety to uh engage in very committed you know you and I might think it's mis you know guided efforts but the point is Same kind of spectrum of commitment uh, across the environmental movement.
0: Now, we've hinted at some of the empirical work that you've done on this. And again, we'll point people back to the articles. You've run the regression analysis. You got data from a a wide variety of sources. It all matches up. We've we've talked about prison gangs, environmental groups, sororities, fraternities, etc. But recently, you revisited this topic and used uh, experimental methods. On it, uh, you have uh, some colleagues there at uh, um, Chapman University down there in Orange County, and uh, y- you went uh, gung ho with uh, trying an experiment on this—a a completely different methodology. After you know, fifteen, twenty years after all this work was initially published, and I mean, this is the ultimate test of a theory to put it up against a- another
1: methodology.
0: How did that turn out?
1: Well, it turned out remarkably well, and I have to give tremendous credit to two of my former students, uh, Jason Imani and Mike Makowski, for uh, uh, spearheading this, and then one of my current colleagues, uh, Jared Rubin. The four of us worked together on this, and it was one of the most effective uh, teamwork, uh, pro- team projects I've ever been on, starting several years ago. Uh, I think it was Mike who came to to me and uh, you know out of the blue and said, you know, you've been we you've been talking about this sacrifice and stigma stuff for fifteen years and uh, twenty years, uh, but uh, people still debate whether or not it it makes sense and whether it's particular to religion. I think we could we could do an experiment and uh, in a lab setting that would prove or disprove pieces of this, and no one could you know say, well, that's just about. You know, that, what you really did was just study some peculiar feature of a church. Uh, and uh, you're right. He, it, if it hadn't been for the fact that he and Jason were at a school at that point, Jason, uh, uh George Mason University, where people routinely did experiments, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, they worked you know, t- uh, with me to kind of translate the theory into an experiment that would be simple, clean, easy to, to, uh, to test and interpret. Jared got involved on the mathematical side of this, trying to model just what the various outcomes might be. And uh, after uh, quite a bit of time, it it came together in an experiment that uh, we ran, and uh, we're frankly surprised how well the results uh, worked out.
0: I remember after... you got the results. I, I've been down at Chapman university and you were really excited that, uh, wow, this, this stuff came out. We don't have a whole lot of time here, but if you could just briefly describe what the experiment was and, and how, um, it was, uh, students that you did this on, which is fairly typical in an academic environment. Um, and one could say, well, you know, it might have some problems with external validity, but the fact that this bolsters a lot of the other empirical evidence is just another, you know, weight on the scale in, in favor of this theory. Uh, how did this experiment run?
1: Okay. So remember that the idea here is that sacrifice and stigma might serve to increase the production of club goods. What that means is get people, individuals, to devote more effort to a group or more of their money or time or energy to the, to a group activity rather than something that just benefits themselves rather than free ride. Well, there is a classic experiment that gets done uh, a lot in economics and other fields called the uh, the Voluntary Contribution Model or Method where basically you say, people, okay, we're going to put you in some anonymous group of four or five people. Uh, people, you know, as you say, students typically will go into some setting. Uh, it doesn't even have to involve computers, although sometimes it's done that way. But put people in, you basically say, okay, you're now going to be a part of a group, four or five of you. We did groups of four. And you're, we're going to start by giving you $10. And then you're going to decide how much of that money to keep for yourself and how much to throw in the pot. And the pot, is going to get divided among all four of you but first it's going to get multiplied basically it's going to get doubled so instead of if if you put you you know all 10 of your dollars into the pot that's going to get turned into $20 and then it's going to get divided up among all four pe- people now do the math if we all throw in our 10 bucks $40 goes into the pot it gets doubled so now we got $80. It gets distributed back. Whoa, we each have 20 bucks. Cool. Obviously, that's the best thing to do overall. But if you think about it from an individual standpoint, he says, well, these other people are going to throw money into the pot, maybe a lot, maybe a little. But what, what about me? If I put a dollar into the pot, it gets doubled. It gets divided four ways. Wait a second. I only get $0.50 cents back on that dollar. If I keep my dollar, ooh, I get, you know, I keep a dollar. The best of all worlds would be if everybody else throws money into the pot and I free ride, I keep my money. And so this is a classic, very, very simple experiment which tries to see whether people are going to free ride, whether they're going to keep the money for themselves and kind of hope that other people throw the money into the pot so they'll get a share of that, or whether they're going to overcome that rational, selfish urge and throw money into the pot. Okay, That's the basic experiment, and it's been studied... Oh, you know, for 20, 30 years, and we know a lot about what happens. Basically, people start out kind of optimistic. They throw, some of them at least, throw a fair amount of money into the pot. Some of them are selfish all throughout. Uh, they're, they're, they're free riders who always keep all the money to themselves. But pretty quickly, the whole thing unravels after one or two sessions, one or two rounds of this, if you let people do it over and over again, they, they realize that, wait a second, I, I, when I contribute money, I'm, I'm being hurt. And pretty soon everybody's just keeping everything for themselves. They're all getting $10 instead of $20. Okay? That's the framework. We said, all right, let's create an opportunity where people can make a sacrifice that looks like joining a conservative church. Uh, We're going to allow them to decide whether they want to play this normal experiment in a normal group or whether they want to join a group in which the money they keep gets kind of taxed away. So if I try to keep a dollar or all 10 of those dollars, uh, 10, 20, 30 percent just disappears. So suddenly now I have the option of joining groups where I either keep money and uh, every dollar I keep, I I get 100 percent of that dollar, or I keep the money and I only get 70 cents on the dollar. Now, why would anybody do that? Well, uh What we hoped is that they would figure out all on their own without reading any articles Mm -hmm. (laughs) and without even being econ majors, they'd realize that, well, maybe if I join a group where there's this sacrifice, uh, the free riders aren't going to do it. You know, they they won't be there. And maybe those of us who are in that group are going to say, well, why, you know, let's, let's... Now suddenly keeping money isn't worth quite as much as it used to be. Bottom line is we hoped that we'd see that the option of sacrifice, the option of joining a group that looked a little more like being a Jehovah's witness or a Mormon would lead to two things. It would get the free riders out. They just not want to be a part of those kind of sacrifice groups. And it would make the people who stayed more generous than you would normally expect. And that's exactly what we found in session after session. We, we did this, uh, numerous sessions with a total of about two hundred fifty three hundred people and consistently found that giving people this option uh, of joining a high-sacrifice group did indeed work out the way the theory suggested.
0: And, and this is, is so absolutely cool to have this come out. I, I know people could criticize this by saying, well, you know, it's a sterile environment with college students you've done this work on, but Again, when you look at the past 20 years and how many people have used it in in so many different contexts of analyzing strict churches and of prison gangs and of environmental groups, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, it's it's just such a cool theory that uh, keeps uh, standing up against every attempt to knock it down. And as as I tell my colleagues, I said, listen, if you're interested in collective action theory, um, you got to read this stuff because this is it's, it's just absolutely phenomenal. Um, we are running out of time here, and I could talk to you about this stuff for hours and hours and hours, and we're going to have to invite you back on the show because you have so much stuff. But let me just finish off with one question. As you've been at this economics of religion now for you know, a long time, we won't say how long, but uh, well, we've kind of said since the early 1980s, um, what else is there to do? What what things are there on the horizon that you're looking at uh, or nudging some of your colleagues to say, hey, these are interesting puzzles
1: we should look at. Um, We've hinted at it repeatedly. I think the area that would be most valuable is to do more and better work taking ideas from the study of religion into phenomena that aren't so obviously saturated in the supernatural. The environmental movement in America and I think across the world has all kinds of quasi religious features to it. I don't think you can really understand it without using the techniques and ideas that we've been kicking around in the sociology and economics of religion for for decades. We've mentioned terrorism. Uh, it's not a coincidence that the most effective terrorist groups all across the world have Reli- very strong religious identities. There are some exceptions, sure, but again and again the groups that are grounded in religions seem to be more effective, seem to literally out-compete and, and often, uh, sadly, uh, out-fight and outkill their secular counterparts. You just can't understand what's happening today in the Middle East if you just treat it as a purely political or purely economic phenomena and forget about the, the lessons that we've learned uh, from religion. Uh, and uh, I could go through you know, an, uh, a long list, but I think that the, there's a lot of good work going on these days trying to understand the impact of religion on economic and social outcomes there's good work just trying to understand the opposite, the way in which change over time has changed religion. We're, you know, trying to study the ways in which religion has changed, the world's become either more secular or less. But I really think the the big payoff, uh, the big overlooked area, has been these phenomena that have religious elements or, or the you know the same kind of structure, but aren't you know, clearly grounded on the supernatural. And I think, uh, I think you know, they, they fall between the cracks of different disciplines. You know, people who study religion don't generally study politics, and people who study environmentalism don't generally, you know, study religion. And and I think there's just a tremendous amount of good work that could be done there, basically just taking ideas and insights and carrying them over.
0: Yeah, this stuff all ties together, and I've been an evangelist of, of that among my colleagues too, who see... You know, study of religion as a rather parochial topic in a, a broader field, but as I remind my colleagues, it's it's all about organizations and human behavior. And uh, if you're going to study human behavior, why not take a look at some of this stuff? And you've certainly opened our eyes to the possibilities of this, and really have inspired a lot of scholars, including myself. And so I want to end on that note, and I want to thank Larry Annaconi for being with us. Finally, on research on religion, Larry, it has been great having you.
1: Thank you, Tony. This has just been a delight, and I'm so glad that you're doing this program.
0: Thank you for listening to Research on Religion. To learn more about today's topic, participate in a discussion about what you've heard, or browse other podcasts, please visit our website at www.researchonreligion.org. And if you like what we're doing, please tell a friend. We'd appreciate the company. See you next week.